Cultivating Place is made possible in part by generous support from the Caddo Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Now more than halfway between the winter solstice and the spring equinox, many of us have seeds of spring and summer foods on our minds and hearts. So this week we continue our celebration of Black History Month and love stories, centered on the cooperative and communal concept of Ujamaa, in conversation with Bonita Adib of Ujama Seeds and the Ujama Cooperative Farming Alliance, as well as Nathan Kleinman of the Experimental Farm Network, a member and collaborator in the Alliance and all that it is growing. I am so pleased to be with you both Two people who spend their lives thinking not only about the physical seeds we sow, but the seeds we want to sow in this world existentially, not just for this season, but for many seasons to come. Bonita and Nate, it is a pleasure to welcome you to Cultivating Place. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I really want to start with each of you reintroducing yourself in the way you like to introduce yourself include in that introduction how you classify or organize plants and seeds and their role in your life. What role do they play in your life right now? Let's go ahead and start with you, Bonita. All right. Thank you so much for giving us this opportunity. Um, I am a mother of three daughters, a grandmother of two beautiful sons, and I've had the uh, blessed opportunity to find my soulmate, Hassan Adib. I live in Southern Maryland, which is unceded Piscataway Kanoe territory, and I have found my life work, uh, the ancestors called, I was able to answer, and I am farming in Southern Maryland. It is a joy to be reclaiming heritage that was nearly lost, and I am uh, totally blessed and honored to be doing seed work at this important time in the history of the planet. So I am thrilled for, for my opportunities. Thank you for asking. Beautiful, beautiful. Nate, let's move to you. Do do, do the same for us. Introduce yourself and uh, perhaps include the role that plants and or their seeds play in your life. Uh, my name is Nate Kleinman. I am a farmer, a plant breeder, an activist and an organizer. I was born in Philadelphia and I'm still based in, in this area, which is a uh, historical Lenape territory. Um, I'm also I farm in Southern New Jersey. I'm going into my 10th year as a farmer. So I still consider myself a beginning farmer. Mm. And um, seeds really play a key role in my life. Um, I would not have expected it if you'd asked me 15 years ago if uh, if my life would revolve around seeds. But um, for the last 10 years, my life has revolved around seeds and um, increasingly I uh, expect to spend the rest of my life uh, working with seeds and the people who care for them. Beautiful. Who along your life's path up until you began working as a farmer 10 years ago grew you into a human for whom that would actually become a viable and passionate calling? Well, I first started growing food plants when I was about three years old. Uh, my mother liked to tell a story of when we were in the uh, hardware store and I was three years old and being a bit of a nuisance. And she handed me a packet of seeds to uh, just to take my attention, some sunflower seeds. And I shook them around and we bought them, took them home. And my mother putting her stuff away and, and said to me, all right, we'll, we'll uh, g- give me a few minutes and then we'll go out and We'll go out and plant those seeds. But I just grabbed the seeds off the counter and ran outside, planted them myself. And sure enough, the seeds grew and we had beautiful sunflowers up against a fence that year. And I pretty much have grown things most every year since then. I expected, I think, when I was growing up that 
uh, I was going to do something in politics or uh, diplomacy. That's what I studied in college. Um, but I ended up uh, ended up on a very different path. And really, it was uh, um, a long road brought me here. But I was doing activist work around the hurricane, uh, Hurricane Sandy after that hit New Jersey and New York. I'd sort of dropped everything um, to do that work for a couple of years. And I came to the conclusion that I could spend the rest of my life bouncing from disaster to disaster, or I could try and do something um, that, that gets to the bottom of the, the issue of climate change. And that's when the, the idea for the Experimental Farm Network struck me as a way to get people collaborating on sustainable agriculture research, to get people working together to breed perennial plants that we can use for climate change mitigation. Uh, if we were to replace the annual genetically modified corn and soybean with, with alternative crops that actually take excess carbon from the atmosphere and leave it in the ground, then we might, we might be able to forestall the disaster of climate change, uh, or at least the, the greater disasters that, that are in store for us if we do nothing. Great. Bonina, who were the people and places and plants that grew you into a woman for whom this would be your calling at this point in your life? Well, that is an amazing uh, question and an important story uh, that takes me back to my childhood. I grew up in a large extended family. And uh, the stories of farming, uh, there was always a big garden and the story of the intelligence of, of farmers, how they were able to uh, understand the water, they understood soil, the various things about uh, biology, and they understood chemistry, they understood astronomy, and they used all those things in order to provide a wonderful uh, living for their family. My family has been farming in this country since 1710 in South Carolina. And uh, all the stories go back to the farm and and the pride that we had in those people and their ability to lead in the community. Uh, my earliest memory was as a two-year-old, my grandfather had a horse that would come and plow the field uh, next to our house. He was a minister, as so many men, members of my family are, and uh, he would plant that big garden and then uh, take me along with him as he dropped off food to families in need around Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So uh, growing food is my earliest memory and a great sense of pride for me and my family. We uh, left and went to California um, uh, when there was an opportunity and uh, did not return to the East Coast until Jim Crow had settled down and we were able to uh, live freely as African-Americans in the East Coast. This uh, work is essential for me because uh, I am very much concerned about the welfare of my neighbors, of my family, and making sure that my grandchildren have pride and respect for their agricultural heritage. And that's a big part of the work that we do. And so successful watermelon farmers and other crops like sweet potatoes, other things that they grew were the stories I've heard my whole life. And so when time came for re me to reclaim my heritage, it was a very interesting journey to uh, find the original uh, varieties that were grown by my family. And it was a, a moment of tears, very emotional when I found out and I was able to share the stories of those uh, plants, those seeds with my uh, the rest of my family, who are now one by one all starting to grow. So we're reclaiming our heritage. So take us to that moment. Let's go ahead and start with uh, how you came to say, I, I want one, I want to keep growing, but I want to do it by reclaiming my heritage. What was the catalyst for for that? shift and about how old were you, Bonita, and what year was it and where were you physically? Were you already back in the, the Southeast? Um, no, we always had a very large garden everywhere I lived. We left uh, when I was in the first grade, moved to California. There was an incident and my family was afraid that my uncle would get in trouble with the Klan. So we snuck away from North Carolina by night mm. and went to California 
And uh, there we had a huge garden and we always partnered with the local farmer. So uh, whereas in North Carolina, we had all the chickens and you know, cows and hogs, all that. We moved to California. We we just had a big garden, but we had a, a relationship with a local grower. So we had 300 chickens every year. Uh, we always had a, a, a hog you know, and a cow. So every year we were doing farming activity. It, it never left us. And I was just talking to one of my best friends and she was telling me that my mother had the biggest garden that she'd ever seen in Los Angeles. Mm. Uh, her whole yard was uh, was garden. It was fruit trees and we ate greens every day. We had choyote growing up on the fence. There was corn and there was never a time when we didn't have access uh, to fresh homegrown fruits and vegetables. I thought everybody was like that, but it, right. it turns out that many people, when they left the South, left behind the trauma that they had experienced uh, around sharecropping and working for other people for free. And they left, they mm. ran as hard, as fast as they could. But what I'm saying to my community is, wait a minute, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We have a precious mm. heritage that can save us and may work to help save the planet. So let's do this thing. Let's reclaim this heritage, be freely independent by growing our own food and make sure that this heritage is never lost again. And that requires some substantial work. Claim it, steward it, but hold on to it for future generations. That's the the, the big work that Ujama has decided to try to do. Yeah. So what year did you found Ujama and with whom did you found it? And then we'll move into its mission statement before moving back to Nate. Well, I can't do any of this without Nate because Nate has been with <laughs> me the entire time. Uh, right, what happened right. was that uh, I was working with a local farmer uh, with the Akiki uh, Foundation, which is uh, Piscataway Park, just across the river from Mount Vernon in Maryland. I was working with a farmer and uh, he and I were out in the field one day and said, every kid should have this experience. Yes, we were providing that opportunity for our children, but we realized that most people did not know where their food came from. And uh, the other thing is he had planted a food forest. And my grandmother spoke of the wild things that she ate in the summertime, going through the woods, eating berries, eating the persimmons that was so delicious. Now we didn't have those kind of persimmons in California. We had a del right. other delicious ones, but I heard these stories. And so once I moved to this area, I said, let's do it. Let's go out and let's identify these varieties and let's uh, bring this to children. So we came up with a concept of, of food from hunger to wellness that even wealthy people in our community were really suffering from not having the proper diet. So everybody was in need of an overhaul of the way we were thinking. COVID came along, however, and stopped all the work that we were doing. Uh, that's how I got a chance to meet Nate. Let me just tell you one little small story. I was working with high school, middle school kids and community college kids, and, and we were running STEM programs. And the kids uh, started a garden. We worked with the U.S. Forest Service on careers in STEM. And um, another friend came along and said, well, why don't you make that entrepreneurial? So our uh, middle and high school kids set up this online store and called the Pharmacy Foods That Heal that was selling mm. starts, native fruits, nuts and berries, and seeds. Just as they were ready to launch, actually on the weekend the, the company was launching, came COVID and shut us down. Mm. And so my dear friend, Paul Lovelace, uh, who is a friend of Nate's, who I met Nate through, told me about the uh, Cooperative Garden Commission. And so uh, through my tears from all the hard work, thinking I had lost my business, I found tree seeds and I understood the importance of heirloom seeds, seeds that were reproduced to look like their grandparents. And guess what? I'm a granny. So I'm all into stuff <laughs> like that. So, so that's the thing about heirloom seeds is that they are true to type. So uh uh, Nate came along and we met on the phone, fell in love on the phone. And then Nate said, uh, Benita, I'm coming down to meet all your growers. Well, in order for us to do the work from this free seeds, we had to organize 
farmers to teach the kids how to do what we call the tiller court. We gave away free seeds, but we needed to prepare gardens for churches, community groups, food pantries. So we had these farmers that organized to teach kids how to set up gardens at urban farms. But the challenge that we had is the free seeds that were donated were mostly grown by Northern companies. And the seeds that our community were asking for were not being donated. But the idea came that if we wanted to grow our own heritage varieties, then we had to farm them ourselves. And that's how we started farming first sorghum and now everything you can imagine. <laughs> this is Cultivating Place. Bonina Adib is a career-long educator focused on food, applied economics for the benefit of community, and restoring ancestral foods to their people. She's the president and founder of STEAM Onward, a nonprofit working to bring more underserved youth into science, technology, and agricultural fields. And she is a co-convener of the Ujama Cooperative Farming Alliance and Ujama Seeds. Nathan Kleinman is the co-founder of the Experimental Farm Network, one of the members, the growing members of Ujama. We'll be back to hear more about all that these many humans are growing and cooking up. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Hey, it's Jennifer. Okay, well, this episode is making me hungry and happy. How about you? I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. And we're back now to our conversation with Bonita Adib and Nathan Kleinman around the germination of the Ujama Cooperative Farming Alliance and Ujama Seeds. As we come back, Nathan, who co-founded the Experimental Farm Network around the idea of shifting the paradigm of big ag away from carbon deficit annual crops to perennial and sustainable crops, helping to feed us and simultaneously healing our environmental and cultural relationships is sharing more about that concept before sharing more about how he came to partner with Bonita and Ujama. I come from a Jewish family on all sides of my family from, from different parts of Eastern Europe. And I didn't really fully appreciate the agricultural history of my people until doing this work over the last few years. Uh, especially. And uh, I've, I've got some ancestors who were millers and bakers back in Romania. Only this past year, I learned about uh, my great-great-grandfather, whose name was Berko Klebanov. I had not known his name. I didn't know anything about him. But thanks to a, a third cousin doing a lot of family history research, I not only learned his name and where he lived, a small town called Bober in Belarus, but that in the late 1800s, he declared losses in a fire that included agricultural implements kept in a shed. So I think that's my first verifiable farmer ancestor that I found. But really this, uh, you know, part of the Jewish tradition involves this concept of tikkun olam uh, or repairing the world. And it's definitely, since I first understood the magnitude of climate change as an issue, which was probably for me about um, 20, 25, 25 years ago in, in high school and in college, it's been a real central part of my life. So it, back in 2013, I was attending a talk by Eric Tonsmeyer, who's a really great author, writes a lot of books about carbon farming and, and perennial agriculture. And that talk was about perennial industrial crops and, and their potential. I had known some stories and, and read about perennial wheat and the attempts to develop perennial wheat through the 20th century, uh, which found some success, but never uh, reached the threshold of commercial viability, so to speak. 
But uh, a big through line in those stories was that people would work on a major ish, major project like breeding perennial wheat or other perennial grains, and somebody might work their entire career on it and then get to the point where they've developed something that's maybe 70% as productive as wheat, at least in its first few years. But then if they don't have anyone to take up the work after they're gone, then it, it languishes or it gets lost completely. Um, so part of the idea of Experimental Farm Network was to create a, a sense of people working, being able to work together on projects like this and encouraging people to be free and open with the plants that they're working with rather than following the corporate model of uh, proprietary relationship with plants and keeping these things cloistered in order to make as much money off, off of them as possible. Um, that was anathema to what we wanted to do. and so with Experimental Farm Network, with the research projects, and then with the seed company as well, which we decided um, to, to launch as a way to support the work without becoming dependent on foundations and grants and, and other uh, large donors, we ended up building the seed company that focuses a lot on more diverse lots of seed, more diverse populations than your typical cultivars or heirlooms, which are really just inbred varieties to develop uniformity. Uh, so that's how EFN got started. And then when the pandemic hit, as a growing seed company, we realized very early on that this was going to be a huge shock to the food system. And uh, seeds started flying off the shelves from every seed company in March of, uh, of, of 2020. So within a week of the first lockdowns, we held a, a conference call to develop some kind of plan to help people who were going to be getting into gardening and who were going to need to get into gardening uh, for food security purposes during the pandemic. And that became the Cooperative Gardens Commission, which uh, developed as its primary mission, donating free seeds, giving free seeds to people and communities uh, who need them. So we started taking in donations from other seed companies, uh, especially small organic heirloom seed companies, and then um, having folks around the country apply to be a local or regional seed hub and uh, and to take on redistribution of seeds in their areas. And that first year, we had over 300 different seed hubs in over 42 states. And that's how that's how I met Benita and, and got involved with uh, Ujama in its early days. Right. Now, I want to just ask you a couple of questions from from the stories you just told but can you do a quick definition of why the focus on perennialized agricultural crops can you just remind yes. listeners who might not who who might know and those who might not be familiar what why that focus Nate so perennial crops have the capacity to sequester carbon in the ground. Mm. That's that's really the bottom line. Um, every time you till the soil to plant an annual crop, you're disturbing the, the soil microbiome, the little creatures, bacteria, fungi that live in the soil, and also nematodes and worms and, and all sorts of other things. Soil is teeming with life, and that's what gives it its capacity to capture carbon. So the bulk of our agriculture is annual agriculture. We we till fields every year to plant these commodity crops, genetically modified corn and soy primarily, and mm. canola and cotton, and also hybrid wheat and barley and oats. Um, every time we do that, we're releasing carbon into the atmosphere. Uh, we're increasing erosion. We're negatively affecting the water supply when we fertilize. Um, but perennial crops keep the soil in place they actually take carbon from the air uh, through photosynthesis and put it into their roots and the other tissues of the plant's um, body. And, and that's really, it. on a massive scale, if we were able to really revolutionize agriculture and change the way farmers grow, we could turn agriculture from a driver of climate change into a weapon against it. Thank you. That was really helpful. So you found this moment, which I think many gardeners and farmers hit that March 2020 moment, just as Bonita described. And you realize that there's this 
both great need, but also great opportunity to come together, to be cooperative, to create networks that help everybody on the ground where they are. And you put together this this collaborative and this commission, and then you meet Bonita. Do you want to take us to that meeting and what you see as the great potential in Ujama? And then we'll move back to Bonita. Sure. Well, when I first heard Benita on a on a conference call, and we do have these calls recorded, someday I'll have to go back and listen to it. You know, we would go around on these calls with people around the country, and people would introduce themselves. And um, as soon as I heard Benita talking about herself and about the work that she was already doing uh, through Steam Onward, her nonprofit in Southern Maryland, I was just blown away, and I knew that this was uh, this was a partner who I was going to be working with for a long time. I, I I started sort of interrogating her on that phone call, which I was <laughs> facilitating. And um, I knew that Benita was a special person and, and was doing really special work. So it wasn't long before I, before I came down to visit and, and um, heard about the work that she was doing with primarily at that time with, with local black farmers, uh, many of whom were struggling to, to make ends meet working other jobs and, and farming as a, as a uh, side job and something, some way to make their, uh, where they live more productive. And they were working on things like uh, shared market development through farmers markets and uh, value added products and, and things like that. And having had the experience over the years prior of building uh, experimental farm network into a, a, a small seed company, I knew that seeds made a lot of sense for farmers like like this because someone can become a seed farmer growing on 10 square feet of ground if you have the right crop right. Um, and you're not trying to grow at a massive scale seeds are are so abundant they're produced in such abundance that growers can become seed farmers with very little land and so by working together with a group of farmers it's possible to start a, a really interesting and unique seed company uh especially if you know know how to access the seeds that nobody else uh is accessing which is in many cases these government seed banks that our government has been putting seeds into for over 120 years with seeds from around the world right and as a business owner and a and a breeder and a researcher you can access those like the the standard home gardener can't call up the the US seed bank in Fort Collins and say hey can you send me a couple of these but you had access and access is another of the sort of intertwining themes in this conversation here that that we're having and whether or not our seeds are free and open to be shared uh, willingly the way plants share them with us or they aren't, whether they are squandered behind locked uh, profit wall doors for new breeding and new innovation, uh, such as the environmental innovations or uh, the cultural importance and relevance to be worked with. Yes. Well, the government seed banks, uh, it's part of the, they call it the National Plant Germplasm System. Um, it is part of their mission to uh, to provide seeds from these seed banks to anyone who has a, uh, I believe they phrase it, a legitimate research, breeding, educational, or repatriation purpose, mm. uh, which is which is actually quite broad. And so, um, theoretically, anyone who tells them that they are that they are a plant breeder, even if they are just working in their backyard, um, has access to these seeds. But most people don't know that they have access to them, and in some cases. Uh, if you don't have a .edu or a .org email address or a .gov email address, the system will automatically flag it and you'll get sort of a, a, a form letter that says, we don't provide seed for home gardeners, et cetera, et cetera. But if you push back and say, no, I, I am not just a home gardener. I, I work with these people. I'm, I, I have a track record. Then they should give you the seeds. But that's, uh, you know, it's something that I don't have any doubt that my experiences and and my privileges as a as a white person in this society have made it easier for me to to take advantage of those things and for me to learn about it in the first place as I did at a at a conference in the in the seed community to make me feel like I have the right to do it as well it's all intertwined absolutely 
And it is all intertwined that you are taking that privilege and growing it forward uh, for for other people to navigate more easily. So let's let's go back to you, Bonita, and this moment where you meet Nate and you start uh, on this next part of your learning path. And we're now in 2020 and you form this idea of Ujama. First of all, can you share with listeners what Ujama means and then talk about the beginnings of the Cooperative Farming Alliance? So uh, as we begin to organize growers, you know, our basic concept will you know, what are we going to call ourselves? Because we were planning a meeting. It's like, you know, what should we call ourselves? So uh, we realized that we did have a jumping off place. You know, it, it feels sometimes like so much African-American culture is lost when in fact it really isn't. So one of the grannies, I mentioned it was started by uh, a granny. What we uh, did was we went to Kwanzaa. We looked at Kwanzaa, and we saw that Kwanzaa uh, had seven principles and uh, collective work and responsibility, Ujama, and those were uh, uh, provided a framework for us organizing for a collective action and a cooperative economics. And so that's how we got started with this principle that everybody, all these growers that are working full-time jobs, farming on weekends and nights after work, if we bound together as other people have done historically, then we could build more and we could do more together. We could share resources, materials, and we could share uh, information, scholarship, and language. Like what is the plant breeder? You know, a plant breeder is a person who who studies and looks at the development of plants. You know, you don't have to have a PhD. And from what I understand, most of them don't have PhDs. Most <laughs> of them are just basic people who have an interest and who take the time to study. And all of this, you know, you hit the keyword access. I did want to talk about one more thing, and and that is the importance of uh, making sure that you know what's important what has been lost. And so one of the ways we do that is do the collection of seed stories. And so we started out, if we said we would like to provide culturally meaningful varieties, we had to go back and talk to the elders. And you know, COVID uh, robbed us of so many elders. And there's an African proverb that says, every time an elder dies, it's like a library has burned to the ground. And so we are losing, we were losing so much information. So we started collecting seed stories. And through the stories that we heard from the from the elders, we were able to develop what do we have to have? What do we have to grow and what needs to be conserved? And that's you know how we were able to uh, look at the uh, hundreds of thousands of varieties and decide what is most important interviewing communities. And it was really clear that everybody from uh, the Caribbean says, we have to have Kalalu and Scotch bonnet. Everybody from the African-American community says, no, you know, we really need uh, collards and, and sweet potatoes and, uh, and mustard greens, okra. So you begin to see patterns in the Asian community. People needed bitter melon, long bean. So you begin to find these patterns. It was super important uh, as we begin to realize that 90% of our food supply is coming from the global south. And so you talked about perennial varieties. I think this is going to be a really, really big deal as we move forward. Because, for instance, sweet potato is a tropical perennial that we have adapted for this climate. So I think as we learn and as we find out it's not all rocket science, agriculture is something people were doing before they could read and write, that this is, it's, it's possible for us to regain this knowledge and bring it forward. This is Cultivating Place. The Ujama Cooperative Farming Alliance and its associated work, Ujama Seeds, is based on one of the seven pillars of Kwanzaa. Ujama, which is restorative and cooperative and communal economics. Bonita Adib, a co-founder and active member of the Ujama Cooperative Farming Alliance and Ujama Seeds, and Nathan Kleinman, co-founder of the Experimental Farm Network, are my guests today. We'll be back to hear more about all that these cooperatives are sowing and growing in this world. Stay with us. 
Hey, it's Jennifer. So many of you have noticed that I've been very quiet on social media recently. And while I think I've mentioned this in passing before, I'm really excited humbled even to share that I have just passed off the copy edited manuscript of my next book to the publisher. Three years almost exactly in the writing and a lifetime in the germinating, this is a book of my heart. Titled What We Sow on the Personal, Ecological, and Cultural Significance of Seeds, it is in fact something of a love letter to seed, and in large part the seed keepers of our world. It is set to publish in late September of this year. I am tired from the final stretch of the work that bringing a book into the world is, but I'm also content. You'll hear more as I know more and see more during this final phase of the book's germination. And of course, I'll be sharing much more about it at some of my upcoming talks, including a joint talk for the Master Gardeners of Nevada County and the California Native Plant Society's Redbud chapter on March 11th, and in Minnesota for the Minneapolis Institute of Arts annual Art in Bloom on April 27th. I hope to meet and see and share communally about this love of gardening with many of you at events across the year. You can always check out the details for my upcoming events at cultivatingplace.com forward slash events. It's going to be a good growing year, gardener friends, and I am so happy to be together with you in it. We're back now to our conversation with Bonita Adib and Nathan Kleinman of Ujama Seeds, among many other cooperative endeavors that these two are a part of. As we come back, we hear much more about the Ujama Farming and Seeds Collective. Welcome back. So it's a collective of experienced and emerging growers, and we have growers all over the country, all spreading all over uh, the African diaspora and uh, abroad. So as people find out about the fact that uh, this mission is one that's that's looking at culturally specific varieties, but also doing the work for the future, you know, say, how can we produce crops that can withstand climate change? For instance, we sell this uh, uh, Oaxacan uh, pepper that can no longer survive in the region where it comes from because of climate change, but we're able to grow it here and provide mm -hmm. it for all the, the Oaxacan citizens that are living among us in this area. So the concept is that wherever you are, you need to be prepared and have the skills it takes to grow out food that you can eat when the crazy rain comes, when the heat comes, when the fire comes, mm -hmm. whatever's coming at us. I'm from California, so we have all of those things on the <laughs> mudslide. Yes, whatever, yes, we do. <laughs> whatever, whatever hits you, that uh, plants are extremely adaptable. Perennial plants more so. And you heard me earlier talking about nuts, berries, and fruit, because these were basic uh, perennials that we all have observed, but, and many of them are right underneath our feet, wonderful things that we could be eating, but because we lost somehow this knowledge of food that is, is available in the woods or in the creeks or even in the deserts. I was watching somebody eating this beautiful uh, thorny uh, cactus. If you know how to eat it, it's delicious and, and it's really good for you and it can survive in desert climates. So uh, this melding uh, of understanding the indigenous knowledge, indigenous cultural knowledge with contemporary uh, breeding technologies and observations and use of satellite mapping and, and soil testing and everything we need to do, we have a roadmap for not just surviving, but thriving in the years to come. And that's exciting. Yeah, it is. And there's something about, you know, that confluence of cultural rebuilding and reinvigorating and environmental reparations and an open access economy that that is a, uh, 
it seems like a, a magic formula for 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 all of us. Nate, would you like to talk a little bit more about any of the programs of the Alliance, uh, seed sources and or seed supply going back out to farmers in the Alliance? Sure. Ujama is, as a, as a collective enterprise, there's a lot of uh, potential directions this project can go in, and it's been really interesting to see where the energy is. Um, Right now, there's a there's a working group within Ujama called the History, Culture, and Research Working Group, and they're working on a, the Front Porch Program, which um, is essentially at this point a book club, a virtual book club to get people talking about the same issues, and and primarily this is for uh, for folks within the collective uh, as a way to educate ourselves and. Uh, and to learn from from some of the really f- phenomenal, um, amazing people in the collective. Uh, so that's been really interesting to watch. Um, I have been uh, co-leading the seed and farming operations working group, uh, and in in that group we are we're really focused on on the seed company side of things and making sure that farmers have the the skills and the tools that they need to produce a viable seed crop. Um, our first year with the catalog last year, we had a, a relatively small percentage of the catalog came from Ujama growers. We were uh, buying a large percentage from from other seed companies, allied seed companies in, in this these struggles. And this year we've been excited, uh, really excited to, to uh, multiply the number of farmers contributing to the catalog by about four. Um, so we have a much larger percentage of the seeds being sold this year uh, are are coming from uh, from Ujama growers, and every every week, uh, practically every day, more people are reaching out to us with uh, interest in joining the collective, and and uh, and we are open to anyone who wants to, uh, and, and particularly encourage people who have um, who already have some skills and and knowledge of growing to uh, to join our ranks. Um, there's also a value-added working group that's working on um, giving farmers and growers what they need to put their produce on our website, not just seeds, to put jams and jellies or soaps or tinctures or things like that. Um, because so many of these products that people are creating at home, you know, they there's no real good way to make money off of them unless you're unless you have the time to really hustle and go to every farmer's market you can and go to stores and try and get them to, to put your stuff on the shelves. But Ujama is building a market um, through the internet and enabling folks to uh, take advantage of it in that way. But, you know, we, we continue doing the free seed distribution as well. And, you know, it's part of our consideration uh, w- in which seeds we grow and how much we grow to think about what seeds uh, are, are still requested by so many people through Cooperative Gardens Commission um, but we just don't have enough of those seeds because other seed companies aren't donating them to us. You know, they're they're already growing as much okra as they can sell, so they don't donate very much to us. Yeah, well, and so that brings up, I think, a, an important aspect of this work that I that I'd like you both to speak to a little bit, and that is this idea of collaboration over competition and contextualize this work in the importance of expanding, deepening, and strengthening these networks. Yeah, I want to talk about, you talked about who makes up Ujama, and I must tell you, we have amazing collaborations. And our collaborators started right from the beginning, people found us because they wanted to support the work we were doing. And interestingly yeah. enough, a lot of universities started coming to us. And uh, we were like, well, what are we going to do with these universities? Because, you know, they don't have the best reputation in terms of working with indigenous people. But it turns out that we have been able to beautifully right. work and collaborate with multiple universities. We have a seed farm at Princeton. We work with American U with faculty. We have interns. And uh, our collaborations additionally are made up of other collectives. For instance, in our African Caribbean group, we have the uh, Kenyan uh, Seed Savers Network. There's 60,000 growers within the Kenyan network. Uh, this uh, and we're working. We're talking wow. to Jamaican collectives. 
There's two in mind. There's other collectives around the world that are doing similar. There's Filipino collectives that are working on rice, but we found rice, a, a group in uh, North in uh, Louisiana doing rice studies. And, you know, we, we really think that grains are important. Also, you mentioned our dear sister, Ira Wallace, who's one of our founding members. The concept is seed companies who want to work with us, uh, researchers, Utopian Seed Project, which is a group of seed breeders who are doing amazing work. We can partner with them. University of Vermont, we have a marketing grant with them uh, that is fantastic and doing research on markets for seeds and produce. And so... Uh, uh, Berea College, just uh, we're finding more and more colleges that are coming out. Bowie State, we're doing aquaponics with them. And uh, University of Maryland Eastern Shore, we're working on value-added um, grants with them. So the partners, people have found us. And we had to, you know, we're babies. We're newcomers. It's like, how do we deal with all these people who would like to be a part of us? So we've come up with a simple system. I want to talk about that. This is the way people work with us. If they've never saved seeds, we'll teach them seed saving. If they're seed savers and they care to protect a rare variety and steward that, you could be a seed steward or you could be a collaborating organization growing out. Uh, we have what's called the Ultra Cross. You probably know about the Heirloom Collard Project. We have an Ultra Cross Collard, we have an Ultra Cross Okra. And our mm -hmm. next big dream is a perennial sorghum. Uh, we also will probably be working with uh, Ultra Cross with other varieties as well. And so the concept is that we, we're small, we're at the beginning, but the synergy and the love that we have uh, has been overwhelming. And uh, it has just been such an honor to meet some of the greatest minds in this work and uh, and to carry out um, what one of our growers, Jim Embry says is the legacy of George Washington Carver. It's an honor to walk in uh, as best we can in the footsteps of great people of, of that nature. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Nate, did you have something you wanted to add to that? Yeah. Um, you know, in this, in, in, the, in the small scale seed community, our, our only competition is uh, the, the big seed companies. Uh, our, our competition are are the 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 predominant um, paradigm in American agriculture. The the Monsantos, the Syngentas, um, the, those are our competitors. Uh, other small scale seed companies who are working to steward biodiversity and to make these uh, these old varieties new again. Um, they are our they are our colleagues and our friends and. I, like I said, I'm, I've been here, I, this is not even, this is my 10th year, 2023, uh, my 10th year doing this work. Um, and so I'm still very new at it. But people like Ira Wallace have been just so, so welcoming and encouraging uh, and generous with their time and attention with me um, since since I started uh, the, this, um, you know, someone in, in other industries, you meet someone who is a who's a book author and who's a well-known personality and gives keynote speeches and they don't give the time of day to somebody who, who doesn't have the, a, a similar kind of experience. But, um, you know, someone like, like Ira Wallace has, has always been, uh, from the first time I met her, uh, has been eager to, to speak with me about seeds and to, to learn from my experiences. Um, even as, as I seek to learn so much from her, um, it's uh, it, it's been a real it's been a real gift, and that's how uh, that's how I knew at the beginning of the pandemic that if we got seed company people together on the phone, that we would be able to do something. And that that first conference call we had on I believe it was on March eighteenth, uh, we had a hundred and thirty people, uh, with the vast majority were were seed professionals and people from the seed industry. Um, so it was it was it didn't take us long before we realized okay we can do this we can we can get uh you know thousands uh, over a thousand pounds of seeds to deliver to to tens of thousands of garden projects around the country it 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 was something that we could only do in in an industry like this where there is such a sense of collegiality and and uh uh comradeship really um 
you know, people, other seed companies freely share their seeds with us. Uh, they, people, people also ask permission for uh, before they, before they sell seeds that are ours. And we say, we don't own these seeds. We put them out in the world and uh, anyone can do with them what they want, but we, we appreciate you asking, but you know, have your, um, have fun with it. We'll be happy to see it in the catalog. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, anybody who's getting people to grow seeds um, and save their own seeds and adapt seeds to our changing climate is, is doing really yeah. critical work that, and that, that takes we all need to, to encourage. The seeds. Your, your, your second catalog, right, is coming out this it's year. Out. <laughs> it's out and I would love to have each of you share maybe I don't know categories you're really excited about new introductions you're excited about maybe total numbers in the catalog this year um and you know yeah share some specifics about the the joys of this second catalog let's start with you Bonita and then we'll finish up with Nate so uh one of the things that was super important to me was my own you know, selfish self, my search for the seeds that my family asked for, you know, the, the college, the okra, the watermelon. And the thing that was very exciting to me was the search I did with support from Seed Savers Exchange and identifying um, uh, what varieties grew in the South where my family was from. And then, uh, you know, using my teaching skills, you know, I'm a 37 year retired teacher. I was able to get some of my oldest cousins way up in the 90s to remember and name varieties. And so we'll be selling some of those varieties such as the Stone Mountain Watermelon, which was the story I heard all my life about uh, all the, the money they made. And by producing that variety, uh, the girls didn't have to leave home and go work in other people's houses. They could work from home. So, uh, and because watermelon is African, it's really big. So we have a, a small collection, but it will be growing. And uh, and also um, uh, collard greens. I think we are going to be famous for greens. When you're looking for delicious greens, you will probably need to come to Ujama first. We're going to that's we're going to rock that world, rock your your greens world. <laughs> <laughs> that's great, Nate. You want to add to that? Sure. Um, well, I'm really excited about uh, some of the new perennial crops that that Ujama is offering this year. Um, things like uh, like uh, black aronia berry, um, eastern sand cherry, um, which are are uh, two native species that are uh, really really valuable as as uh, food crops and good for wildlife, but uh, good for um, for rehabilitating land that. Uh, that that needs some needs some love. Um, we're also offering some um, some plants that in this country, most of this country, are going to have to be grown in containers and brought indoors in the winter. Uh, but in some parts of the country, can be uh, can be grown outside. Uh, things that are that have incredible cultural resonance, like uh, like moringa and uh, and baobab tree, even. Um, really excited to be to be able to offer those um and uh it's just it's so exciting to have um to have uh della sorghum our our second year of a uh, a crop that was the first crop that ujama started growing and sorghum is one of uh it's one of my favorite crops personally and it's 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 uh one of the ujama uh co cooperatives um, most important crops. Uh, it's, it's sorghum is an African grain and uh, native to probably southern Sudan and uh, uh, Ethiopia region that has spread around the world and is is an incredibly important crop in in so much of the world. It's already the fourth most widely grown in the U.S. Uh, mo most widely grown grain, uh, but it is mostly grown for animal feed here. Although more and more people are discovering it as a the grain as a food crop because it's gluten free. It tastes great. It's uh, it's more nutritious than the typical uh, gluten uh, flour alternatives like potato starch or tapioca starch. Um, you can make biscuits, cookies, uh, breads, all sorts of things with it. And then the stalk makes a delicious syrup. Uh, and there's a long history of that use in in the in in the upper South in places like Tennessee and North Carolina, Kentucky. Um, 
and yet this is a, this is an African crop, but it most people, to the extent they've even heard of it, they think of it as an Appalachian crop or uh, something like that. Um, so it's exciting to it's exciting to have have that in the catalog and to be increasing our numbers um, of of sorghum varieties. And because this is the year of the millet, uh, sorghum is the great millet. So we are very excited that around the world, people are going to be talking about sorghum. Okay. And now, now even more, we are, we are lifting the name sorghum into the seed and gardening universe. As we come to an end, I would love to have each of you add anything you would like about the importance of this work to you personally, to our human collective, environmentally or culturally? Let's start with you, Nate, and then we'll finish up with Bonita. You know, the past three years have been so isolating uh, with the pandemic. And uh, I, I've, I've thought a lot about what this isolation means for, uh, for, for me individually, for my family, for my friends, and, and for our, our, our culture at large. And the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized that, that we were increasingly isolated, so many of us, even before the pandemic, and um, especially uh, especially elders in, in our society, um, in, in where we have young people moving to moving to cities to find to find better work and uh, leaving people alone in in, in rural areas, and uh, really a, across the country, and the, and the same process is happening in places around the world. Um, you know, we have a real crisis of isolation um, and plants. I see plants and seeds as a way to to bring people together, um, to encourage collective action and um, and to build community. Uh, that that's how I've tried to work with seeds since I've been doing it. And, and, and to me, that's a. Uh, a, a huge reason for Ujamaa existing, and and it's it's one of the most exciting things that I've seen come out of Ujamaa in its in its uh, in its short life. Uh, the 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 relationships that that have been um, have been built and the the community that is growing uh, is really uh, it's just so heartening and and such an antidote to the to the isolation and alienation of this uh, this modern world. Thank you. Bonita. So uh, Ujamaa uh, is the extended family. That's uh, uh, the language that uh, of Swahili, but it talks about how the extended family works together. We're working together to examine uh, collective action again, uh, something that used to be common, barn raisings. No man could build a barn by himself. You had to call in all your neighbors. And so uh, Technology allows us to reach out to our neighbors around the world. If they collectively want to do this work, if they're doing work that's going to be beneficial to the planet, and it's going to help people be able to feed themselves. And if you can't feed yourselves, are you really free? So we're reclaiming this. We're honoring this. And uh, we're hoping that uh, people will be able to look to the past for the beautiful lessons and see more than the sadness, uh, but can look forward to a wonderful future uh, where agriculture it continues to be a daily activity. Like we say, if you ate today, then you're involved in agricultural activity. So we're all doing it. So you might as well do it with joy and pride and with a sense of family and community. Is there anything either of you would like to add? Uh, I did not mention, I mentioned Dr. Wangari Mathai that I normally mention. Uh, she, I mentioned George Washington Carver, but she is uh, uh, the mother of the Greenbelt Movement, which is planting trees all over the world. So uh, I, I forgot to give Dr. Wangari Mathai a shout out. First environmentalist to win the Nobel Peace Prize. First sub-Saharan African woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize. In the seed movement, we we use the word rematriation to honor the fact that women are traditionally the keepers of seed in, in most traditional farming societies. But folks like Rowan White with the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network have really gone a, a long way to popularizing rematriation as a concept. and. 
it's something that's been in, become increasingly important in, in my work, and it's something that uh, Ujama is also focused on because so many people have become literally have, have become detached from their ancestral seeds. It's a problem for indigenous communities on this continent, and it's a problem for communities around the world. The government seed banks are are a resource for rematriation because seeds are are just sitting there in in a deep freeze in Fort Collins or in Ames, Iowa, and people don't know that their ancestral seeds are there. So folks like us who have access to it, I, I think it's incumbent on us to get those seeds out of these institutions, to grow them and share them uh, and give them back to the people whose whose ancestors created them. You know, it's in, in some cases uh, for, for peoples who who really consider plants like relatives, this is like introducing someone to a long lost family member. And, uh, and it's such important and meaningful work. Yeah. It's like you finding your, your ancestor and giving him a name. Um, this is, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I actually, in, in, I write some long seed descriptions from time to time, (laughs) um, often excessively long, and every year there's usually one. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was the it was the Asaba indigo, uh, the Sea Island indigo, which is a really amazing story. Uh, and this year it was the uh, Odessa market calendula, which um, which is a seed that I got out of the government collection, but uh, is a local local landrace calendula that comes from uh, from the same city where my great grandparents left in in 1905. And, uh, you know, growing that out this year was was really last year was the first time in my life that I felt a real tangible connection to that place that that's that's part of my history. I thank you both for the communal work you are doing with seeds and with places and with humans in those places. It has been a great honor to speak with you both. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Bonita Adib is a career-long educator focused on food, applied economics for the benefit of community, and restoring ancestral foods to their people. She's the president and founder of STEAM Onward, a nonprofit working to bring more underserved youth into science, technology, and agricultural fields. And she is a co-convener of the Ujama Cooperative Farming Alliance and Ujama Seeds. Nathan Kleinman is the co-founder of the Experimental Farm Network, one of Ujama's alliance and seed people. Speaking of plants and place this week, we of course focus on one of the figurative seeds the Ujama collective Bonita and Nate are involved in, the Heirloom Collard Project and Collards themselves. The Heirloom Collard Project is working for the recognition and respect of collards as a key component of American food culture so that their seeds and their stories will never be forgotten. They are a collaboration of collard-loving people and organizations, as they say, quote, a crockpot of sorts where the ingredients are each respected, but the true magic is in the pot liquor, end quote. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, collards are botanically known as Brassica oleracea, variety acephala, and their common names include colewort. They are a form of cabbage and in the mustard family, Brassicaceae. They are an excellent source of minerals and vitamins A and C. Collards share a botanical name with kale, and they are usually grown as annuals but are in fact biennials that, like most brassicas, produce yellow four-petaled flowers in loose clusters in their second year, which then become dry-capsuled siliques filled with the seed you can save. Like other mustard family plants, collards are susceptible to cabbage looper moths and their larvae, as well as aphids. In cultivation, you can harvest the lower outer leaves on the plant 
progressively to extend the season of your plant, as well as to hold it over for its seed-bearing second season. The Heirloom Collard Project coalesced in 2016 around 60 varieties of collard seed jointly requested from the USDA by Seed Savers Exchange in collaboration with seed keeper Ira Wallace at Southern Exposure Seed Exchange. The seed of these rare heirloom collard varieties, most of which had been collected by Edward H. Davis and John T. Morgan from Seed Savers across North and South Carolina were then trialed at the Seed Savers Exchange farm in Iowa. The goal was to regenerate the seed and share it with seed savers across the country. The Heirloom Collard Project organizes the varieties of collards the collaborative is stewarding into general groups based on their morphology or how they look, including heading collards, cabbage collards, glazed collards, tree collards, curly leaf collards, and colored collards. The fact that many of the varieties bear the names of the people from whom the seed was collected or the place where the seed had been stewarded, such as Tabitha Dykes, Buddy Brickhouse, Lydia Gibbs, Drusilla Delone, and Louisiana Sweet, speaks eloquently to the long-term loving relationships that are people in their places with their plants, selecting each other over and over again, over years, miles, and generations. Join us again next week when we return to our love of apples and the warm comfort of eating and cooking with them. A particular joy in late February when spring and summer seem close, but still so far away. We're in conversation with the UK's James Rich, orchardist and chef and author of Orchard, Sweet and Savory Recipes from the Countryside. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. The program is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.